This week on Making Contact. It doesn't matter if abortion's legal if nobody can get an abortion. If women don't have access to um, adequate health care as and when they need it, if they don't have access to advice around um, abortion, for example, or contraception, then we are, what we are doing is we are placing their lives in jeopardy. Thirty years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court legalized abortion in the historic Roe v. Wade ruling. Since then, attacks by the religious right and passage of restrictive laws have chipped away at women's reproductive freedom. On this program, we look at how low-income women and young women are losing their access to abortion. We'll also discuss a right-wing campaign which claims abortion can cause breast cancer and how the Bush administration is putting women's access to reproductive health care in danger around the world. I'm Sandina Robbins, your host this week on Making Contact, an international radio program seeking to create connections between people, vital ideas, and important information. Abortion was legalized nationwide on January 22, 1973, Half the women in the United States will have an abortion in their lifetimes, exercising the basic human right to control one's body. But that hard-won right could be taken away. A change in the composition of the Supreme Court could jeopardize the Roe v. Wade decision, and many observers say there is currently an unprecedented attack on reproductive freedom. The assault on abortion rights happens on several fronts, including clinic bombings, anthrax scares, and assassinations of abortion providers. While anti-abortion protesters try to stop women from entering clinics, well-funded publicity campaigns keep the anti-choice position highly visible. In addition, the healthcare industry has limited abortion access, and Catholic hospitals refuse to perform them. Even though abortion is one of the most commonly sought surgical procedures among U.S. women, most medical students are not trained to perform them. Opinion polls report that a majority of Americans continue to support a woman's right to a safe and legal abortion. Nevertheless, the religious right has the ear of the Bush administration, and the president's actions reveal a much broader anti-woman agenda, including in the areas of birth control and welfare rights. Although the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalized abortion, subsequent Supreme Court rulings have narrowed its scope. In addition, over the last 30 years, state legislation has restricted the legal right to abortion, and as Sarissa Tanner reports, lack of access to abortion threatens women's health and lives. In 1966, when abortion was illegal in most of the United States, Renee Chellian had a back-alley abortion at the age of 15. Because she saw how important this could be for other women, she then started working for the doctor who helped her recover from her illegal abortion. Several years later, she would find herself on the front lines in the fight over abortion. She used to open her front door to the shouts of protesters, and Chilean has received death threats for founding and operating three abortion clinics in the Detroit metropolitan area. Before Roe, I started working 
for a physician who got a license to practice medicine in New York, and he set up an office in Buffalo, and we would fly there on Friday mornings very early and see patients on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then fly home. And we saw patients from a six- to eight-state area plus Canada. I don't know how they found out about us. Um, I'm not sure. I, I know that some of them got there by hitchhiking, some of them bought one-way plane tickets and figured out how to get home later. Rarely did they have someone come with them if they flew because they couldn't afford two plane tickets. Some people drove. And we used to see about 100 women a day, um, some of them who had no extra money. So for the year and a half that I worked there, I almost always had someone sleeping in my hotel room at night um, who didn't have a way home. And then after January 22, 1973, when Roe reversed abortion laws in the land, I worked in one of the first clinics in the Detroit area. While abortion clinics did open across the country, for some women the days of traveling long distances and scraping together the money to pay for an abortion never ended. Thirty years later, almost nine out of ten counties in the United States have no abortion provider. Access, this is Ikea. Jennifer Parker of the organization Access in Oakland, California, runs what the group calls a practical support hotline that attempts to help women throughout California struggling to get abortions. Volunteers give people rides to the clinics. They buy bus tickets and help people get on the bus if they have to go to another city. They watch their kids while they're at at their appointment. Um, They provide them a place to stay overnight so they don't have to stay. I mean, women have tried to sleep in their cars or on the street um, when they've come into town for an abortion. So they give them a warm bed, they give them a meal, and they give them a supportive ear, um, somebody to talk to and somebody to support them in, in making the decisions that they need to make. Parker adds that although abortion is still legal, anti-abortion activists have worked to put it out of reach. The right has also been really savvy about knowing that they couldn't outright make abortion illegal, but being very clear that It doesn't matter if abortion's legal if nobody can get an abortion. So as long as they work on things that limit people's access, um, whether that be financially, geographically, or by intimidating providers and women from going to abortion clinics, that they in fact win um, by stopping people from, from getting what is a legal procedure for them. In 1969, Loretta Ross was living in Texas. She was the victim of incest and became pregnant at the age of 15. She was not able to get an abortion because it was outlawed in her state. One year later, when she was assaulted again and became pregnant with twins, she sought an abortion in Washington, D.C., one of the few places where it was legal at the time. She's now the director of the Center for Human Rights Education in Atlanta and recalls that the erosion of abortion rights started with cutting Medicaid funding. With the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, many women actually thought that they'd won the battle because we had the complete federal legalization of abortion. But, of course, only three years after Roe, Congress introduced the Hyde Amendment that took away abortion funding for women whose health care was dependent on the federal government. 
So poor women, women in the military, women in prisons, they lost abortion access only a bare three years after Roe v. Wade. Because the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision was based on the right to privacy, proponents of the Hyde Amendment argued that the government was not obligated to pay for a private decision. However, pro-choice advocates saw the Hyde Amendment as a way of attacking the right to abortion by going after the most vulnerable first. The first victim of the Hyde Amendment was Rosie Jimenez, a single mother of a five-year-old. Faced with another pregnancy in 1977, Jimenez was too poor to afford a private clinic, and she died of a botched back-alley abortion. Renee Chellian fought for many years to keep Medicaid funding for abortion in Michigan, a state that now has some of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. In addition to cutting Medicaid funding, Michigan has instituted so-called informed consent and parental consent laws, plus a mandatory 24-hour waiting period before a woman can get an abortion. The restrictions that we've seen are in, in many, many states, but we have a lot of them in Michigan. The first one is parental consent because it's easiest to go after minors. It's an extremely misunderstood subject. Um, you cannot legislate communication with family. You know, what we've seen are kids who hide their pregnancies. They not only don't get abortions early, um, they end up as second trimester abortions because they've hidden the pregnancy, or they end up too far along and they've had absolutely no prenatal care. Or they die, as in the case of Becky Bell of Indiana, who was too afraid to tell her parents as required by law. She died at age 17 from a serious infection, the result of a secret abortion. Chilean also reports that she sees many women who have sold their food stamps or some other necessity to pay for their abortion. If safe abortion is not truly available to all women, Loretta Ross wonders if the term pro-choice is a misnomer. When you use the word pro-choice, you introduce this concept of a marketplace of choices, as if women are going supermarket shopping and if just today I'm pregnant so I'm choosing to have an abortion. And it makes the decision sound a lot more frivolous than it actually is. And particularly when you talk about so many marginalized women, like poor women, like women prisoners who really don't have choices. Uh, So it is an accurate language to say we're pro-choice, that we are actually offering women choices. What we are doing is protecting women's right to self-determination and to control what happens to their bodies. And so in the liberal language of choice, we're losing the focus on women's rights to control their own bodies. During the coming months and years, most eyes will be on the Supreme Court, where the appointment of one conservative justice could result in the reversal of Roe v. Wade. In the meantime, Young, poor, and geographically isolated women are still struggling to gain access to this right. For Making Contact, I'm Sarissa Tanner with the Women's Desk of the National Radio Project.
For decades, those opposed to abortion have told women it is immoral and a sin. Now, right-wing religious groups are telling women abortion is unsafe and dangerous to their health. As Liz Tassio reports, some anti-abortion groups are using scare tactics and questionable medical studies to block women from exercising their right to control their reproduction. In the mid-1990s, a new poster appeared on a Pennsylvania subway that said, Women who choose abortion suffer more and deadlier breast cancer. Despite medical evidence to the contrary, claims like this have been turning up all over. If it was argued on a basis of science, um, there would be no contest, really. It would not be, um, it would not win. It would not win in court, that, that argument that abortion causes breast cancer. Joyce Arthur is a writer and activist who works for the Pro-Choice Action Network in Vancouver, Canada. She says anti-abortion groups should take a careful look at studies that dispute the alleged link. And the anti-choice are not doing that. They're just ignoring uh, the studies that say there's no link, which there's some very good studies, very thorough, comprehensive studies uh, that are considered to be the best in that field. And the anti-choice just ignore them, basically, and concentrate on the ones that say there is a link uh, and that's really, um, you know, cynical misuse of science. In 1996, it was the group Christ's Bride Ministries that bought advertising space from the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority and put up subway posters that said, women who choose abortion suffer more and deadlier breast cancer. When pro-choice groups protested, the Transit Authority removed the ads. Christ's Bride sued and won the right to finish out their advertising contract based on the First Amendment protection of free speech. Matthew Staver, president of the legal defense group that represented Christ's Bride Ministries, says he believes the statement on the posters is true. The campaign, he says, was meant to get people's attention and educate women. Because I believe women need to know. I believe that anyone going through a procedure such as abortion, which in my opinion involves the taking of a human life, and even if someone differs on that, the woman ultimately has uh, an opportunity or a moment in her life that can be life-changing for that individual woman. Both the American Cancer Society and the National Cancer Institute say studies have failed to show a definitive link between abortion and breast cancer. Yet the claim still appears as fact in pamphlets distributed in front of abortion clinics. The claim also pops up unchallenged in the mass media from time to time. Joyce Arthur says anti-choice efforts are more about a political agenda than they are about science. They pretend to care about the health of women and um, by telling women that it might increase their chance of uh, breast cancer if they have an abortion. But really what this is is a scaremongering technique and it's related to their overall goal which is to stop women from having abortions. Anti-abortion groups are using political muscle to get the purported abortion-breast cancer link written into law. In 2001, bills were introduced in 18 states that would force clinics to tell women that having an abortion may increase their risk of breast cancer. In Montana and Mississippi, such laws have already passed. In California, a bill was introduced in June 2002 stating that the legislature acknowledges the link between a first trimester abortion and breast cancer. Legislators are interfering with the relationship between a woman and her doctor when they make these policies, according to Joyce Arthur. 
basically what the legislators are saying that they're doctors they know best what to do for the patient you know they don't have the expertise and it's quite insulting I think to doctors and to people like counselors at abortion clinics to say well you're not doing your job so we have to step in and tell you what to tell the patient. In Mississippi state law requires women to go to the clinic for counseling 24 hours before having an abortion. During the counseling the clinic must tell the women that their risk of breast cancer may increase if they go through with the abortion. Betty Thompson is an administrator at Jackson Women's Health Organization, one of only six abortion providers in Mississippi. Women come to the public clinic from miles away for pap smears, gynecological exams, and abortion services. Thompson herself has picked up many patients at the bus station when they had no other way to get to the clinic. Some women have to stay in town overnight after coming in for their state-mandated counseling before an abortion. Thompson says telling women about the so-called abortion breast cancer link scares them. I don't know if it deters them, but it certainly frightens them because they go that extra step and ask the doctor about that and ask the doctor to explain in detail uh, of how soon this might happen uh, and how often have they seen it happen. Thompson says the warning particularly frightens women who have already survived breast cancer. But clinic workers give more information than required by the state. They invite women to search the Internet and to read what the American Cancer Society has to say about the link. Generally, the women read about other studies, Thompson says, and this usually comforts them. Until it's proved that, you know, abortions cause breast cancer, I wish we could remove it from the law uh, because I think that is prohibitive for women. For Making Contact and the Women's Desk, I'm Liz Tashio. listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like a free information packet on abortion rights, please give us a call. Our toll-free number is 800-529-5736. And remember to ask for your free packet. That's 800-529-5736. Thirty years ago, few would have suspected that the U.S. government would uphold legalized abortion at home while holding back reproductive freedom abroad. In 1984, at the Second United Nations Conference on Population in Mexico City, the Reagan administration introduced an anti-abortion policy which pro-choice activists call the Global Gag Rule. According to this report by Pauline Bartolone, the policy has since been used by Republican administrations to block women's access to abortion worldwide. The global gag rule uh, for us uh, has deprived us from the right to speak, the right of women and youth in general. So uh, if you cannot talk about uh, things you want to talk, that means you are deprived of. That's why we did not sign it. Twabesh Mangistu works with the Family Guidance Association in Ethiopia. Her organization refused to sign the Mexico City policy, widely known by pro-choice advocates as the global gag rule. The policy discontinues funding for family planning from the U.S. Agency for International Development, going to foreign non-governmental organizations that actively support abortion as a method of family planning. 
the U.S. policy was adopted by the Reagan administration in 1984. President Clinton lifted the ban, but George W. Bush reinstated it as his first official act as president. Kathy Hall Martinez of the Center for Reproductive Law and Policy says that the U.S. policy interferes with international clinics, which provide any kind of family planning services. And what it is, is it's really a very insidious policy that is extremely unfair and extremely hypocritical because it says that an organization overseas that's receiving U.S. foreign assistance isn't allowed to even speak or advocate um, or provide legal abortions in the country where it works, even with its own money. The Family Guidance Association of Ethiopia agrees the policy is unfair. They lost 12% of their funding because of their refusal to sign the gag rule. The association used funding not only to provide women's health services, but also to advocate for legal abortion in Ethiopia, according to Twabech Mangistu. Even though abortion is not legal in Ethiopia, uh, we at the Family Guidance Association feel that uh, it has to be legalized one way or another sometime in the future. Therefore, we want to work on the advocacy. If emergency funding had not come from the Netherlands, three out of Ethiopia's 12 women's health clinics would have been shut down. The Netherlands is also home to Rebecca Gompertz, a woman who created an organization called Women on Waves. Their mission is to provide services to 25% of the world's women who live in countries where abortion is illegal. Gompertz says that the gag rule not only affects access to abortion, but also women's health centers in general. These centers usually provide all the care which surrounds pregnancy, uh, whether it's to prevent pregnancy, whether it's to, to guide pregnancies through to, to birth, whether it is to prevent, un, to, uh, to, uh, prevent unwanted pregnancy and to treat it. So a lot of these organizations, they provide the whole set of health care. And so now they can't or they cannot talk about abortion anymore or give information about it or even mention the word or they can't, um, they have to stop uh, providing all the other services as well. Many reproductive rights organizations share Gompert's outrage about the gag rule, deeming it an attack on the well-being of women in the 60 countries which receive money from the U.S. Agency for International Development. 50% of maternal mortality worldwide is caused from unsafe abortion. And Twabich Mangistu of the Family Guidance Association says that Ethiopian women suffer severe injuries and risk their lives during unsafe illegal abortions. Because abortion is not legal, young girls and women who do not want to carry the child all the way through uh, seek some kind of uh, getting rid of it. So the only way they have is to go to the backyard abortionist who do all sorts of things uh, to, you know, initiate some kind of bleeding. And then they go to the uh, hospital. Once the bleeding starts, uh, the hospitals do, the, do it for them because this is emergency. Therefore, uh, when they go there, I think uh, it will be done if they are alive. But most of them die to sepsis and infection, and bleeding. United States policies such as the global gag rule are just one part of the picture when it comes to undermining women's reproductive rights internationally, according to B.C. Adelaide Fayemi. She's a Nigerian women's rights activist 
and also executive director of the African Women's Development Fund. She says that reproductive rights of women suffer from global economic policies, such as structural adjustment programs instituted by the International Monetary Fund. When our countries are forced to implement harsh economic policies like structural adjustment programs, they have to make certain, certain sacrifices and make certain calls. And the first things to go are usually um, spending around health, education and access to social services. If women don't have access to um, adequate health care as and when they need it, if they don't have access to advice around um, abortion, for example, or contraception, then we are, what we are doing is we are placing their lives in jeopardy. And that is why, for example, Africa has one of the highest maternal and infant mortality rates in the world. So these policies do have a very serious impact on people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis. And women's progress in reproductive health are also vulnerable under policies enforced by the United Nations, according to Rebecca Gompertz. The Bush administration is also trying to influence United Nations politics on these issues. For example, uh, there's now um, a conference uh, being prepared again, which is called the Cairo Plus 10, uh, which is talking about issues like reproductive health, sexual health, uh, which means education, um, prevention of HIV, um, unwanted pregnancy, everything which has to do with that. And uh, now the Bush administration is saying that they don't want to support this anymore because in this document there is talk about reproductive health and rights, and they are saying that is implying abortion. Well, abortion has always been mentioned separately. The fact that the Bush administration is now saying that they are not supporting this language anymore is, is extremely um, worrying. Thirty years after Roe v. Wade, what many Americans see is the Bush administration's attempt to limit access to abortion, not just within the U.S., but across borders. Kathy Hall-Martinez. It's very cruel for our government to step in and, um, and try to sort of upset the balance um, with a policy that was really masterminded by extreme right-wing um, ideologues on, who have a very specific view about the, that, you know, that women's main role should be as reproducers and, as, uh, and basically that they should be confined to their role in the family. I mean, they have a very conservative view about women. And that's what they're trying to impose and to try to ensure um, remains in place, you know, in other countries um, where, where women's equality is still developing and where there are still many challenges to that process. The Center for Reproductive Law and Policy filed a lawsuit in 2000 against the Bush administration, claiming that the global gag rule censors the organization's ability to advocate abortion reform worldwide. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals dismissed the case in September 2002, as they found no grounds for the lawsuit. For Making Contact, I'm Pauline Bartolone with the Women's Desk of the National Radio Project. That's it for this Women's Desk edition of Making Contact, a look at abortion rights. Thanks for listening. If you'd like a free information packet on the struggle for abortion access, or if you'd like to order a CD, our toll-free number is 800-529-5736. That's 800-529-5736. And remember to ask for your free information packet. You can also visit our website at radioproject.org. That's radioproject.org. Special thanks this week to Christina Kuhn, Ellen Horn, Jackie Thomason, Michelle Waller, and Kimberly Ross for production assistance. 
Music from Annie DeFranco and Shamikia Copeland. Peggy Law is our founding director, managing producer Philip Babbage, women's desk director Lisa Rudman, associate producer Amy Pomerlo, office manager Rosalind Fay, associate manager Susanna Hines, senior advisor Norman Solomon, national producer David Barsamian, and I'm your host, Sandina Robbins. Making Contact is an independent production. We're committed to providing a forum for voices and opinions not often heard in the mass media. If you have suggestions for future programs, we'd like to hear from you. Our theme music is by the Charlie Hunter Trio. Until next time.